Hi, this is George Lynch from Lynch Mob, Dawkins, Souls of Lee, and you're listening to Iron City Rock. Hi, this is Graham Bonnet, and you're listening to Iron City Rock. Hi, this is Chuck Wright, and you're listening to Iron City Rock. Episode 466 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 466, we are pleased to be joined once again by Mr. George Lynch. Uh, obviously, history with the Lynch mob, docking, uh, solo artist. Uh, we're going to be talking to him about uh, a new album he has coming out later this week, actually, on the 20th of August. Will be releasing Seamless, and it's hard to believe this is his first fully instrumental album. So we'll get into all those details. Also joining us from Blues Traveler, we have Chan, a guitarist, will be joining us to talk about a show they'll be doing in the area. And last but not least, joining us Jimmy Waldo, uh, currently of the band Alcatraz, uh, also going to be talking about a album that is going to be seeing a re-release. Uh, from his band Blackthorn. So we will talk all about that in just a little bit. Uh, first, what we're going to do, we're going to give you a little taste of the album Seamless by George Lynch, play a little bit of a track called Death by a Thousand Licks. Talk to Mr. Scary. <laughs> Rocks. We have George Lynch on the line. How you doing, George? Very good. So the new record, uh, Seamless, is going to be out in just a couple weeks. Um, it's hard to believe, you know, looking at your career and, and especially the abundance of material you've put out over, let's say, the last five to ten years. Um, seems like you do a couple albums a year anymore. But this is the first all-instrumental album. Was there a reason why it was time to kind of flex that muscle in particular? Well... It's kind of like a tattoo people, some people get, you know, if now, if not now, when. Sure. Um, I forget what the Latin uh, phrase is, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it, and, it, and it, things sort of just sort of, it was like sort of a perfect storm and things sort of just triangulated to the point where there's this nexus of opportunity uh, because I'd written a record that I thought was going to be a lynch mob record and it didn't pan out. So I was sitting there with this whole bed of, you know, a full album worth of instrumental music that I couldn't finish. And so in a sense, it was a salvage job, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's, you know, it's a bad thing because <laughs> the results were good. And that's what I was worried about. So the, the, the label asked me, they said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I'm just going to start over again because it, it, I just wrote the wrong record. And they said, well, would you consider instrumentalizing? I go, I don't think it wasn't designed for that, so I don't think that would work. But after a while, they convinced me to give it a shot, and I did, and it did work. So there you go. Was it? Uh, I don't think it worked 100% of the time on every song at every part, mm -hmm. but I think um, for the majority of, of the record, it, it, it did work. Do you do you are you a person that typically when you put you know pick up the guitar and you say okay I want I want to do you get in the mindset I want to create an instrumental so I need the the riffs to certainly work with a guitar melody versus a vocal melody and the traditional verses and choruses and things like that or does it do you typically write for that end result? 
Well, I have very rarely in my in my career done that. Yeah, and uh, obviously, Mr. Scary. Although I'll have to say, Mr. Scary was written with the intention of having vocals on it. <laughs> okay. It just you know it wasn't that wasn't going to happen. It did you know, singer Don at the time couldn't he, he didn't hear it? You know, so I just again I instrumentalized it as a default sort of action just to salvage the song so it could go on the record. Yeah. Same kind of thing that happened to Seamless. I'd written, I think, very few things intentionally just as instrumentals in my life, so um, I've had a lot of experience doing that. Um, yeah, because did. I'm really a fan of singers. I'm not really, a, you know, I don't listen to guitar players as much as I listen to singers. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I would imagine um, you kind of have to be in a slightly different headspace, you know, if you're going into it with the intent of saying, I'm going to write you know, like you said, Mr. Scary, as an instrumental, you maybe you consciously or subconsciously do things slightly different, you know. But the, That's a whole different animal, and not something I have a ton of experience doing, and would definitely have to be at the top of my game technically uh, to pull that off. You know, um, a lot of things, I'd have to be firing on all cylinders mm-hmm. to make that happen in an intentional way. You know, and uh, the reason I haven't done it, and the reason I, I did do it in, in the happy accident way versus the intentional way, is because if, if I'd done it intentionally, I would have probably never done it, or because it was never the right time, and things were never aligned perfectly, mm-hmm. never will be. And also, um, it would have been a very expensive proposition, a very time-consuming proposition, uh, using, you know... Uh, a lot of resources, um, probably a lot of different musicians, a lot of different locations. Because I, I, you know, in my mind's eye, what I really would aspire ideally to be is something that was every every composition was a kind of a reflection or, or an organic reaction to where I was. You know, sure. so okay, I'm going to go down. To, I'm going to go down to Chiapas and record a song. <laughs> I'm going to sure. go to the islands and record. I'm going to go to, you know, down. You know, in the south, the Pine Ridge or Native Reservation in the Southwest, and work with some Native people, and you know, uh, uh, you know that kind of thing. And just and, you know, go go to New York City, go to London, go to Prague. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking. It's a really huge endeavor. I mean, this is like you have a half a year, and very expensive, and very time and resource intensive, and um, and so maybe I scale it back. You know, maybe I don't do all that. You know. But still, uh, you know, and, and every song has to be something. It has to be a point, a reason. You know, so I'll, I want to do a blues song. Cause I'm a blues guy at heart, and, you know, mm-hmm. and that's where I started with. That's I started with R&B, blues, and soul music. And so I, I want to I do that. Okay, how do you do that? Okay, well, that's going to be analog. Okay, where's the analog studio at? Who, can, who records the analog? Who can edit on tape any longer? Yeah, who you can know, afford it? Kinds yeah. Of things. Yeah, and then okay, well, I'm gonna go to Rancho de Luna and Joshua Tree and record a song, you know, with uh, one song with uh, you know uh, the producer of Joshua Tree, you know, U2's Joshua Tree. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, how does that happen? You know, I mean, it's it's, it's basically this idealist wish list of you know, if I it, just just dream big and, and could that happen? That would be my instrumental record. It'd be my magnum opus, you know. But I don't know. You know, I don't know if that could ever actually really happen. So instead, I did this, sort of as a happy accident, as an afterthought. Yeah, and, and I would and, definitely say that the key is yeah. happy there. I mean, this is a, this is a, a quality record, even if it, you know, wasn't, the, you know, when you put the project together and said this is where I'm going with this, where you ended up is still an amazing place. What I should thank you, and what I should have done was lie and say that I did all that stuff. Yeah, we would we would we wouldn't have known any different. <laughs> you know what I mean? That would have been like genius, flying marketing kind of stuff. You know, like Ozzy bit off the head of a bat, which he really didn't do. They came up with that in some, you know, uh, publicity boardroom meeting where they were just you know coming up with ideas how can we get crazy shit out there to promote this guy. Yeah, um, that kind of thing. So maybe I should. Yeah, maybe that's what I should do. work more on on coming up with too some. Late, I told the truth. 
George bites the head off a singer or something. We could you know, make a make a fortune on the on the marketing angle. <laughs> was it was uh, when you're doing these, you know, like I, I listen to some of these songs. Some of these, you know, like I think a very long song to do an instrumental. And imagine for most people to pick up a guitar to say you're going to do a seven minute instrumental is very intimidating. Do you just kind of let it fly, or do you kind of have in your head, you know, you've obviously got a bass track you put together to have a, a vocalist over, but when you're going to go and do leads over that, do you kind of map where you're going, or you just roll and see where it takes you? Well, that whole that whole middle section of, I think, is uh, was, I mean, the underlying parts of that were all played in real time. I. Uh, um, it was just me and the drummer mm-hmm. in his garage, essentially, <laughs> his studio. Uh, it doesn't look too far from me, and we hang out. And I was just sort of playing through like his amp. I just came over for the day to just kind of work on ideas, and we were jamming. And, you know, we were doing some punching in and stuff, but that, that whole section was just kind of a top-of-our-head idea. I mean... Um, um, I mean, I don't remember exactly, exactly how it went down, but I just remember it's it's kind of the thing that I had in my head that I had messed with before, but I hadn't, I didn't really have anything laid out, like you know, written down or that I repeated exactly. Mm-hmm. So it was just sort of a thing that I would mess with a bit, and um, as, it worked. As <laughs> just, a player, are you it a, was out of mistakes? But we just left it alone, and then we built our. You know. Are you a, a player who thinks you know I, I want to do this in Dorian or you know the no. modes and, and keys and scales. I don't know any. I don't know. I have no idea. I do not speak that language. I don't understand it. I cannot relate to it. It means it's actually it's Portuguese to me. I have no idea. So you're just blessed with with the ear to to know what works and and where to go well, with I'm it. Also cursed with the inability to learn theory, which I've tried to learn all my life many, many, many times, including recently, and I'm still going to try to learn. I've never been able to get past that threshold of understanding. Yeah, it is, it's certainly, and, and in some ways you think, you know, maybe that helps the originality of the playing, because you're not necessarily hemmed in. I mean, obviously there's a, you know, a multitude of theory and a lot of amazing musicians who know it to death, you know, but sometimes I think people who think outside of the box have a different, you know, vehicle to express themselves, maybe. So that's, that's yeah, fascinating. If you don't know the rules, you can't break them. Yeah. Um, but also at the same time, for me, it's it's a, a little bit stressful every time I perform. It's a record or live performance or whatever. Sitting Just sitting down. I mean, I, I because I don't know rules that I can use to guide me I don't everything is a mystery so it's sort of like I have this stress that I I have to reinvent the wheel every time I sit down you know sure I mean because I don't know you know I can't I can't say okay well you know this solo I played that I'm now going to play live when I go step out on stage was this scale or this mode so I can know I always have to play that and I can play that I don't know that sure the thing I played on the record was something that was just sounded right you know mm-hmm. i don't remember how i played it and maybe i do maybe i don't but so even even now i, I go on stage and and i'm it's just a constant thing with me i have to kind of always be relearning stuff you know it's like that movie where that guy forgets everything and he has to write it on his body you know and look in the mirror to remember keep track of information sure there's no memory of past behavior or information that's I mean, it's not that bad, but it's it's kind of like that. Sure. Know? So it, it creates a certain amount of stress and apprehension. Yeah, you and, look at, uh, you know, if you, you know, you're in a situation where you're going to perform any number of these songs, there's a lot, and just a sheer volume of notes to, to almost have to memorize would be yeah. Uh, amazing. Yeah. 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 And, and, and all played pretty much off the top of my head. So yeah. in yeah. a moment in time, which has long since passed and, I've done lots of other recordings since then and performing and playing. I don't have any idea what I played because I don't I haven't had any reason to learn it or mm-hmm. remember it. 
because I don't have a band built around it and I haven't toured with it because there's a pandemic and you know and they're probably if I ever decide I'm going to incorporate some of these songs into my you know and play them live in my current group uh, Electric Freedom I would have to relearn them you know yeah and uh, that would be difficult um, it, that would be and cool. I actually had an opportunity to learn uh, or learn a couple of them because I did an, uh, a pretty involved uh, interview it was over a two day period with uh, videographers and interviewers and stuff from cameramen from Young Guitar Magazine mm-hmm. photographers from Young Guitar mm-hmm. Magazine came over here to do a whole cover feature thing on me for this for the seamless release and uh, one part of a very important really the heart of the of the of the whole feature in the interview was they wanted to videotape me dissecting two of the songs and explaining all the parts in the songs the rhythm parts the solos etc and I sat with them, I sat with the songs before the interview and tried for hours to figure it out, and I could not. So I finally had to call them and let them know, I'm very, very sorry. I hate to say I'm failing at this, and I hate to say no, and I appreciate you guys putting me on you know, the magazine. I cannot, I cannot do this, because I just, if I try to do it, it's going to look terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean. And, uh, you know, it's just not going to. Uh, I'm just not going to figure this stuff out. I have no idea what I played. Yeah, and, that, and I think a lot of people are probably almost relieved to hear that kind of honesty. You know, when when I listen to your music, I listen to this album, you know, over the weekend a few times, and I'm like, you know, to get through one of those songs would probably be my crowning achievement, you know, on the guitar. But to go through, you know, you, the number of tracks and and you know the different voicings and things like that, and to remember all the stuff, but it's it's almost glad to hear. You're just, you know, you're you're kind of just playing with your heart instead of your head, not trying to think it out too much. Um, it's it's yeah, depending on the part. There's some head going on too, but it's, sure, uh, it's uh, it's you know the recreative thing is the problem. Yeah. When you're the kind of player I am, I just kind of even though something might be kind of technical and repetitive, you know, I'm going like so let's say I take a pattern and I and I move it into three different octave positions. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, you just got to figure out that pattern and then you got it. But, you know, uh, then there's other parts that are just kind of quirky and like, I don't have any idea where I was at on the fretboard. I don't know what those fingers yeah. are. I don't know how I, you know, it was just kind of, and I have just kind of happened in a moment. And I don't know, you know, unless I had a video of it, I, which I probably should have done. Uh, uh, I have no way of understanding how I made that. So, have you ever gone back, you know, at any point in your career and dug out like somebody else's, uh, you know, transcription of what you did? I know you'll see that you know guys who get gigs with bands and have to learn the catalog by the weekend for a show will you know dig out the Hal Leonard book. Have you ever had to go back and look at what you did on anything? Uh, I have done that like decades ago mm-hmm. when you know stuff was coming out of the dock and the lynch mob. And people had pointed out that things weren't right, and maybe gone over that. And yeah, there was there was some, there was definitely some inaccurate tab going on. Sure. Um, because uh, you know, I, for for instance, I had a, I had an experience with uh, when I played on the uh, Tony McAlpine record and did the Tears for Sahara, and uh, was in the studio with him, and there was a, a thing. He's I've always need to ask you. So I always need to ask you. Is this how you played this? And there was a thing, a lick, uh, you know, a lick that I did. Uh, docking record, I guess, and and he's like, is this is this how it is? And he played this freaking crazy inner valley, <laughs> super stretchy thing that was like, wow, Jesus, this is painful to watch. And I was like, I go, oh, you mean this? And I played. It was like the simplest thing, <laughs> and he just he was laughing and blew his mind. He goes, seriously? <laughs> yeah, I could see that. So, you know, yeah. It is funny how you, when you look at some of the tabs. Sometimes you'll think, you know, did they not consider that you could just go to the next string and get that note a whole lot easier? And, um, those kind of things. So that's cool to know. Having done an instrumental now, if you know, record company X comes to you and says, hey, you know, we want to offer you a, a you know, I don't want to say a 2021 advance on a record because those are not really a thing anymore, but you know, a, a decent sum of money to make another one of these records. Was this something you would jump at the chance, or you'd say, okay, I've done that, let's go do something else now? I, You know, in recent days and weeks, I've, and I've toyed with this idea, of course, 
a lot in the past and uh, was is doing a, a blues record. Mm-hmm. You know, and you see Bonamassa and whatever he's gone from sure. you know, Eric Johnson clone or Child Prodigy to now kind of the blues rock guy, that, you know, preeminent blues. And I'm not saying you know jump on his bandwagon, but I'm sure. I'm just saying like that's what I grew up with. I generally am very comfortable. I'm not saying the best blues player and rock blues player in the world, but I, I, my style translates to that because that's where it came from. I, mm-hmm. you know, I sort of superimposed my little technical stuff and you know quasi shreddy stuff and whatever I most I do on top of a blues platform. I'm, I'm a blues rock player. You know, I grew up in the late '60s and throughout the '70s listening to all those guys. You know, the Peter Greens and you know, Clapton and, and, and Beck, early Beck, and, and Hendrix, who's heck, Hendrix is just electric blues. He's Albert King, you know. Yeah. With, you know, Albert King dropping acid, you know. And, I mean, it's just, that's me fundamentally break it all down. I'm very comfortable with that. I would love to do a blues-esque record. I don't know exactly what that means, but, you know, I don't mean that means me, you know, with a foot pedal kick in a cardboard box with a cymbal on my head. <laughs> you know, doing a one-man band, or if I got, you know, if it's more like Chicago blues, or it's like big band, we got horns, like kind of more like where Bonamasso goes, or something more organic like Sunhouse, you know, <laughs> I don't know, you know. Yeah, I mean, the, the beauty of that kind of music is it's really timeless, and it's not a trend. Um, and I think a lot of people tend to forget, you know, they look at you in the same vein as... You know, the Ingves and, and the Steve Vai's and the Eddie Van Halen's, because that's when you achieved you know, fame, but none of you grew right. up listening to that kind of music. You guys listened to the Walter Trouts and Peter Greens and, you know, those kind of guys that shaped the players you became. But, uh, you know, I think it would be fascinating to hear, you know, that aspect of your playing come out. So that, that would be a, a really cool idea. Well, George, I don't want to keep you. I know you're, you're a very busy man probably got another album or two in, in you today um uh, I've, but, yeah i've got three albums i gotta write and record today yeah that's it, looking at your it, the, like I said, the last couple of years i look back and it's like wow i forgot that one even came out or you know the, you, almost like hendrix prolific in the last decade it, it's fantastic to see it's it's stupid it's 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 like career uh Suicide. It's, it's so silly to, to be putting out this much material. It's 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 really not smart. But at my age and where I'm at, I love writing. I love composition. I love playing. I love recording. I've got my own studio. So and and and, and lots of freaking amazing people like want to play with me, which is just yeah. so incredible and fun. And I can never say no. I I, I'm, I can never say no to any opportunity. I just hate saying no. So well, I like to say yes to everybody. I like to do everything, so I do. Yeah, well, as, a, as a fan, and I'll let everybody else figure it out. <laughs> as a fan, we're glad you can't say no, but you know, maybe take some time off and relax for a while. But uh, looking forward to it. if you get that blues yeah, thing, that would be fantastic. But uh, this uh, seamless comes out August twenty first or twentieth. I'm sorry, twenty first is the year. Twentieth is the date the album's coming out. It's on Rat Pack. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Again, Seamless from George Lynch will be available later this week, August 20th, to be specific. I'm going to turn our attention now to uh, a man who, oddly enough, we have not had on the show uh, before. This is uh, Chan Kinchler of Blues Traveler. Blues Traveler obviously broke massive in the 1990s um, with their album 4. I've had a string of great music since. Uh, have a really cool new album that's just been released, Traveler's Blues that um, I, I think is really one, if you enjoy blues music at all, is really worth a listen. It's got some great uh, guests. Rita Wilson uh, is, is on a track. Uh, Chris Stone, uh, Kingfish Ingram on another track. Warren Haynes. Uh, so I think that gives you an idea of what we're talking about with this album. And obviously, John Popper's voice uh, shines as always. So we had a chance to catch up with uh, Chan. The band is going to be in Catanning, actually, to do a show and hear my words, a free show in Catanning on the 28th. Uh, so wanted to have a chance to talk to him about that and the new album. So without further ado, we're going to play a little bit of uh, 
Travelers Blues and get into that interview chat. Welcome to Iron City Rocks from the band Blues Traveler. We have on the line Chan Kinchla. How are you doing, Chan? I am doing good. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. You are going to be rolling in with your band here uh, to do a show on August 28th, Arts in the Allegheny Concert Series in Catanning. be great to have you guys back. And I wanted to talk about the new record, um, Traveler's Blues. Um, I, I, first off, question was it as fun to make as it sounds like oh my god it was so fun you have to remember we recorded it in nashville in september october of 2020 the dreaded 2020 yeah so as we all did you know the spring we canceled a few shows figuring you know we'll be back up in a month and then we were like well we'll definitely be out in the summer and you know blues traveler has been on the road somehow some way for the since those that last show in pittsburgh yeah. <laughs> the first show in pittsburgh i should say lord um so once summer fell apart as i think the the whole world did we realized we were probably in for the long haul mm-hmm. and uh this blues doing a blues record was something we've been kicking the idea around going back for a decade at least um and at the time we just happened to be uh, talking to Roundhill Records about some things, and they have this great back catalog of music, a great blues uh, catalog as well. Right. So that kind of spurred the idea that maybe this is the time to do it. We had just done a, um, a, a original studio record a year or so previous to that, so we weren't really emotionally prepared to dive into that. Um, so as most good things with Blues Traveler, it was kind of an organic uh uh, evolution but by the time we got in there we were just so happy to be doing anything and uh you know we had we had since we started as a blues band back in high school albeit a very bad one but we loved it sure. it was kind of a cool you know in the midst of that that break to kind of get back in touch with what we loved about it to begin with so it was just so nice to be making music with the guys again and to be uh you know doing something how did you come to a consensus on what material to to kind of tackle? Was it everybody kind of threw some names in the hat? Um, you know, someone it, had a strong it, well, arm to I, get their favorite? As I was saying, most things, we, you know, there's thousands of songs to pick from. So everyone was like going through this huge master list and kind of throwing out their, their so there's probably like seven or eight, you know, emails going around where people throwing in their songs. And as slowly but surely, you know, there was a bunch of songs we agreed on. So we were kind of leaning on, this sounds cool, that sounds cool. Um, So after a couple months of doing this throughout the summer, (laughs) this thing was taking more and more shape, uh, we, you know, we were down to 30 or 40 songs. And then our fearless producer, Matt Rawlings, uh, he, as all great producers, finally kind of took what was seemed like a big amorphous list and curated it down to something that could be a cool, you know, record and cover a lot of areas and, and the stuff we all love, we were all into doing. So in the end, Matt Rawlings, as usually is the case in this uh, endeavor was the final word on, uh, on style and, uh, and doing it right. So he was maybe more the referee than the producer in that regard. Um, you are well. Are, most most good producers referee yeah. is one of their key jobs. That's, that's it. We, we don't worry about don't worry about levels or, or artwork. Just referee. That's the engineer's job. He's just got to get all us cats herded in the right direction. Exactly. Um, you've got a tremendous lineup joining you on this record. Um, kind of a oh, who's yeah. who. Um, I, I know you you guys worked with Warren Haynes a long time ago. Um, 
if I remember correctly, on the four album, or, or I might be wrong on that, but you've yes, got Cab Moe. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and Warren wasn't quite, you know, Grant, he was obviously an amazing musician back then, but, you know, Warren is kind of one of the most sought after musicians really in the world right now. Um, you've got Rita Wilson. He's so um, awesome. Yeah, exactly. But when his, when his voice comes in, Next to John's, you're like, well, you know, because the version I was listening to, it didn't have who was playing on what, but there was no denying when Warren uh, came in on that track. Um, was this were these all people you knew, and you just made some phone calls? I mean, Kingfish is a pretty young dude. Um, he, sadly, he's been he was born after a lot of your albums came out. When you think about yeah, it, um, did, it was it was a mix. The Warren, we actually. When we, in the, like, 1990-91, we opened up for the Allman Brothers mm-hmm. uh, when we were just kids. And Warren had joined the, the Allman Brothers at that point. So we know Warren from back then and had been playing with them a lot. And then on Horde, Governor Mule came, uh, he put that, they kind of started out doing Horde shows. And we yeah. toured a lot with Governor Mule way back in the uh, in the day. And even played a New Year's show, I think, with, with the Mule. So we've had a relationship with Warren going back till you know, to nineteen ninety. Um, the other people, it was a mix of people we knew, people Matt knew, because Matt's an amazing musician and, and right. producer. But he so he's played with everyone, um, you know, a, a lot of people himself, and also Josh, the uh, president of Roundhill Records, knew a bunch of people. So it's really sure. all hands on deck. You have to realize it was kind of during the the height of the, the pandemic yeah. so the logistics of getting people to fly places you know we were still everyone was pretty hunkered down at that point yes September, so definitely it was a lot of you know reaching out who could, could could do it and once again you know we came in and kind of sequestered in our bubble and laid down all the tracks kind of one day at a time each each track putting pretty much put them down live which i think is why it feels so fun because there's a yeah. lot of that immediacy um of just putting down bass tracks, not a lot of overdubs or or other, you know, just get a good take and 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 then Matt Rollins, as is, uh, well, could you come back to that was the the one behind getting finalizing all these people we had reached out to and God bless them all for come, coming in various ways, figuring out how to get them on the uh, the album. So it was again a, just a big group group effort, which Matt Rollins brought home. Was it Matt's idea to, to in the first place, to, to add additional musicians? Was there a time where you thought, okay, you know, this is we're in COVID hell, it's impossible to get, you know, the band together, let no, alone get other people? We always thought it would be super cool. Okay. Um, so that was kind of always the idea, is to get have other have guests on throughout the record. We thought it would make it a, a lot more interesting. Yeah. Um, and you know, cool, cool uh, effort. It certainly did. Which it, now, which it did. You you guys have, have had a legacy and obviously you know enjoyed a tremendous amount of album sales when albums sold, um, and have yeah, got indeed. you know a handful of songs that you're going to get lynched if you don't play. Are, are songs like this yeah, where where there are songs people would instantly recognize? Are they easier to slot into a set list than if you had made you know you rewind a couple years to your previous all original? Songs are those harder to ingest into a set than than some of these classics might be as yeah, far as an for audience. Sure. I mean, you know, the way we look at it, since we've done so many records, more than I can count, uh, you know, which songs make it? I mean, like our first record was all songs we played in little bars in New York City, and so mm-hmm. we knew all those were going to work live. But after that, you know especially, you know, by the time we got a few records in, you know, half the time you're writing for the studio, you never, and by the time, you know, you get along, you never know what's going to work live. It's almost, it's a really different beast. I mean, you have an Mm -hmm. idea. So with each album, if there's one or two that really find a home on stage live, that's great. Um, The cool thing about this for us is we had kind of drifted so far afield from our, blues roots yeah that we didn't really play any straight kind of blues stuff which is something we do pretty well uh in the set 
so getting these songs back in the set, first of all, everyone, especially, you know, we're kind of a jam-based live music fan, sure. fan base, loves blues. And so it's immediately kind of accessible to everyone. And uh, it's something we love to play. So they, But it, it also adds a whole dimension to the set we kind of had drifted away from. So these songs are fitting in great. They're going over great. Yeah, that is... You know, this is something I wonder. You know, when I look at look at your band, we you know, you had several enormous radio hits, obviously that I'm sure, in many ways, helped pay mortgages and tuitions and all that stuff of that course. you guys need. But we were surprised as anyone, trust me. Yeah, <laughs> but as a musician, does that sometimes? You know, I, I look at a band like Government Mule, which you mentioned before, who who almost don't have the burden of a hit, so to speak, where the, you know they can play anything they want any night of the week, and, and no one really thinks about it. But if someone's going to you know put down the money on the table to come to a blues travel show and maybe hasn't kept up religiously with your catalog, that might walk away you know disappointed if you don't play a hook. No, one hundred percent. Is I that mean, somewhat of a burden as a musician? Cross the bear, but it's a consideration. I mean. We never want to be the band that people go to the show and, you know, because there's there's a good portion of people that are serious, hardcore fans that might know yeah. a little more of the material. But there's always a, a large portion that just love the, the more well-known stuff. Yeah. So we make sure to not be the band that doesn't play their hits. It's right. too cool to play their hits. Um, you got to dance with the girl that, that you came with. Yeah. But, uh and I do remember at the time, you know, we were kind of more, it was like widespread panic, us and fish were kind of this off to the side, building our live show fan base. And that was kind of, we were quite happy going in that direction. So when we got those big hits in the mid, mid nineties, it was, it was kind of weird. I mean, it was a great ride. Yeah. Um, but you know, you have half the show is the crowd is hardcore fans and the other half are people that just saw us on like vh1 or mtv yeah so there was definitely a little bit of a culture clash there i guess but um at, at this point you know it's just part of our identity so we embrace it and we're always changing the setup all around those songs and we kind of look at those songs as old friends yeah, I, I look at you know some of your tour statistics and the number of songs you play. I mean, you're not quite a Springsteen number of tracks per tour, but you're you're in the conversation with the number of songs you guys work into some of your tours. So that's that's got to be a lot of we fun. We try. I mean, there's there's a lot of considerations too. I mean, John's such a kind of operatic, dynamic yeah. singer that working around not blowing out his voice is 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 important as well because sure. Voice is one thing you need to keep fresh and uh, and and alive for for a tour. So I'd say that as much as anything dictates how much how far we can go in in getting you know. So we we pick a few songs each tour to kind of work mm-hmm. on, but sure. you know those are all the considerations of being out on the road. You can't uh, you can't rewire the voice or get a new amp. Yeah, and and, and you really. You don't want to, I mean, it is somewhat of a signature of the band. You know, John's voice is is so distinct. I, you know, I was thinking about that when listening to the album, and I, I mentioned how Warren's voice comes in in such a contrast, uh, you know, or even Kingfish's voice, or obviously, you know, the two male voices that kind of jump up. Yeah, but John, John's got such an amazingly distinct voice. You know, it's one of those things that, um, yeah, you got to kind of protect it. Well, I want to thank you so much again. Traveler's Blues is available now. It's been out for two, three weeks at this point. Um, definitely worth a listen, and you guys are coming in on the 28th to do the, a show. Uh, we just found it's the number one blues record in the country, so thank you, everyone. That's <laughs> awesome. Awesome to hear, and it's it's great to see, you know, um, you know the blues. Uh, it's amazing, you know, how these artists, you know, in that genre – alive and well it it doesn't seem to fluctuate much anymore you know i think since the 90s things well, have kind you know, of slipped that, that kind of music it's a uh, it's something you can't recreate the kind of the immediacy immediacy of the emotional kind of improvisational aspect of blues is something that's not really recreatable um just on a a little video um you know the experience of going to see live blues is is whole you know unique and not you can't really recreate it so i'm sure that form will be alive and well and also all the little bastard children has created 
Yeah, amen. Well, Jan, I want to thank you so much, and and I wish you guys, uh, you've got a ton of shows between now and then, but wish you safe travels into Pittsburgh, man. Looking forward to it. We will see you then. Thanks, man. All right, again, Chan and the rest of Blues Traveler will be in Catanning on the 28th for a free show. Head over to ironcityrocks.com. We'll have all the details on the show. We're going to turn our attention now to a band when I list the band members that I'm sure will stop you in your tracks. This is a band that I never knew existed. Vocals, Graham Bonnet. Keyboard, Jimmy Waldo, uh, of also of Alcatraz. Bass, Chuck Wright, Quiet Riot, House of Lords. Drums, the late Frankie Benali. Obviously, if Quiet Riot played with Wasp, uh, to name a few others. And Bob Kulik, who uh, also has departed, unfortunately. Bob played guitar with Meatloaf. You know him for the work in Kiss. Uh, you know him from his work with his brother, uh, Bruce. That band was called Blackthorn. The album was put out in 1992. Three, the album was called Afterlife. It was a single album. I never remember hearing about it. Uh, and thankfully, Jimmy Waldo was going through and found uh, the masters for this, as also and also the second album, the follow-up album that never saw a release called Don't Kill the Thrill. He's releasing both of these as a two-disc set uh, with some additional bonus tracks. So we're going to play a little bit of that. We're going to talk to Jimmy Waldo. How you doing, Jimmy? I'm doing great. How's it going? I'm doing fantastic. Um, you currently, obviously, with Alcatraz, you've been with Alcatraz forever uh, at this point, it seems, and you've got a, a a great, I guess, new entry into the market with Blackthorn, but a band that's been around for close to 30 years, and you're re-releasing both of the band's albums, um, which is fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about you know, the process of, of one getting the rights to be able to re-release the first album and and the you know the ownership to to be able to put the second album out as part of that package. Um, well, there's the the ownership has passed through record companies really, and we just we found a bunch of new material in my garage tapes that I had from me recording demos. Uh, with the band and so I had all that stuff and, and owned it um, had the rights to it okay. so then made a deal with the label to re-release the first record Afterlife and then added this stuff onto it so uh, it was real easy it was no big deal as the record companies doing and then like I said me personally owning these mm-hmm. owning all the rest of that material myself the old possession is uh, nine tenths of the law, kind of thing. So exactly. Uh, now, um, yeah, I, I think the, you know the name Blackthorn maybe doesn't necessarily ring a bell with a lot of folks, which was unfortunately a lot of that was timing, and, and timing it was everything. And you know, from yep. about ninety one to ninety five, what you put out wasn't almost as important as the fact you put it out during that period of time. So this band maybe fell into a vacuum but when you take a step back and look you had Graham Bonnet obviously yourself Bob Kulik uh, whose name I think anybody who's 
you know, listen to rock music ever knows who Bob unfortunately passed away. Right. Frankie Benali, who uh, right. unfortunately we lost as well, one of the, the absolute sweetest guys, and, and Chuck Wright. Oh, of, gosh. You know, so yep. you've got, you know, you look at that lineup, you're like, holy moly. Um, how did this go unnoticed, you know? And and that maybe is, is a question itself. How You know, what was, you know, when this album saw the light of day in 93, if I'm not mistaken, what went wrong right. promotionally, do you think, that, that this didn't get at least a little more attention? Well, grunge killed us. Um, and there were a lot of great bands that I liked. But it was just stylistically, we were at the wrong place. At the wrong time. <laughs> well, basically, we, uh, we had shopped the demos, got nothing, and uh, we finished the album. We ha- we started, we had the deal immediately in Japan with Polydor Records. Mm-hmm. So that w- we had enough money to do a, a proper record. And with the thought that, wow, that's great, Japan paid for it, uh, the record's going to do well in Japan, now we'll get a deal in the States. Um, and nobody would touch it. So it came out in Japan, and then uh, it didn't do well in Japan. They put a lot of money behind it. We went over and did a promotional thing for them, Graham and I, Bob, mm-hmm. um, and were received very well, but but the record didn't sell at all in Japan. So it didn't sell in Japan. We had no deal in the States. It finally came out in the States on... Uh, God, I can't. Um, he's a great guy. I just I can't remember the name of the label. Um, Tom Lipsky was his name. Oh, I can't remember the name of the label. Anyway, they put the record out, but there was really no. They put it out like a year or so later, right. and no promotion. Right. They did distribute it, um, and in England, it came out over there did nothing over there the record really just didn't sell anywhere and um i guess the grunge thing that's the only thing i can figure japan's a mystery because i didn't realize they were into the grunge thing as much as they were but they were following the american trends so a lot of those kids there i found out were were basically into grunge as well so the rock audience there that normally would have bought our record wasn't as big. It turned into a grunge audience because they follow us. They yeah. used to really follow our trends. I mean, they still do, but um, a little better now. Now it's more of a worldwide thing. Yeah, it's a little different now because now it's more worldwide with Spotify and stuff like that. It's not like well, Japan's so different than anybody else. I mean, I was just there, and and the music scene there is very, very similar to the United States. I mean, and Europe, it's not that big a departure. And they still love uh, heavy rock there. Yeah. So, yeah, Blackthorn, well, we missed that boat completely uh, all over the world. So we didn't sell anything <laughs> anywhere. Yeah. Uh, really disappointed. We tried to play in the States. We played some shows. Didn't do well at all. Yeah. And nobody would book us. So, I, I think it really that, underscores... You know, how important the marketing aspect of the music business can be because i think you know there yep. there was a, there was certainly still an audience for metal um you know in, in this album it kind of blurs the line of metal versus hard rock certainly but um you know i think had people you know gotten the name recognition but but record companies especially in that era were so into chasing trends you know you had Nirvana, yep. you had Pearl Jam, so there were 40 bands that were instantly shoved at us. I was working in radio at the time. You know, we weren't getting. You know, we went from from some of the major labels. You went from getting the the Winger, the Warrant, the White Snake to getting you know Blind Lemon and you know Soul Asylum and things yes. like that. It was a very quick shift. Um, and and it almost became passe. And I think of of a band like Contraband, you know, the the Michael Schenker project, that, you know, with, right. with was kind of a very right. similar similar in nature to what you guys did, where it was like, you know, you look down that lineup and think, 
you know, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to buy it just based on who's in it. Not even, I don't need to hear a note. But, you know, they preceded you guys by two years, and what a difference two years made. Not that it was, you know, quadruple platinum either, right. but, um, you know, it was on MTV. It, it, you know, it was, people were buying the CD, uh, for example. Um, where you yeah. guys, I think, maybe made a superior yeah. album that literally no one knew about. Um, so... I mean, literally, <laughs> yeah. it was uh, it was it was depressing because we really thought we had something. We were real excited about it, and uh, we all really put our heart and soul into that. You know, uh, Frankie and Chuck played their ass off, mm-hmm. and uh, Bob and I worked really hard on those songs, and we brought in an outside. We did that's some outside material. Um, we won't be forgotten. Off the off the Afterlife album was written by Bruce Kulick and Paul Taylor, and and Bob Kulick. Um, but we just loved the song, so it fit the band perfect. So we did that. Um, Graham had a lot of help with the lyrics and the melodies and stuff. Yeah. So we really went all out to try to make that record as good as possible. Yeah, and and, and, uh, and listening to it, you did. It's just you know. Right stuff, yeah. wrong time. Yeah, I mean, and that's it, it's yeah. I, it's, that's all it was. It was just timing, and no, and like you said though, even with the bad timing, if we would have had really good marketing, yeah, uh, we we could have done something. We yeah. might have made a dent. Yeah, you know, I mean, but uh, just literally nothing. I, I remember nothing talk, talking to to Red Beach um, many years ago, the guitarist of, of uh, Winger. And how he had said if they had just right. released their debut album two years earlier, you know, they could have been on cruise yeah. control even now um, with, you know, the yeah. amount of marketing muscle that went into that. Not that Winger didn't get, you know, some love from Atlantic Records, but not nearly the love they would have got if they had put that album out in 1985. Oh, um, my. Oh, my God. Nothing like that. Yeah. yeah. You're but, absolutely right. They would have killed. They would have been Bon Jovi. You know. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, they had they had gosh. all the ingredients um, just two years too late to the dance. But um, you know, yeah. when you went back and did this, you obviously you included not only the first album, you know, which for many of us was a first listen, but you're including the follow up album, which in my right never got released. That's correct. Okay. So we were getting, never, and then never, some other. Goodies. We didn't get that far. We got dropped from uh, Polydor. We did the first album for Polydor, and then um, we were set. They were sticking with us. We were going to do the next record, and uh, Graham quit. So when Graham quit, uh, Polydor dropped us. Okay. And <laughs> that really uh well i didn't get into that but that was devastating to say the least sure so we had to start all over again and uh with the timing of the way things were at the time plus that kind of stuff happening it was uh devastating yeah and 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 the the weird thing was they they dropped us when graham left but the record never sold anything in japan Mm -hmm. with graham on it i mean so why they dropped us is like yeah wow. did that matter <laughs> yeah and, and i should illustrate it really didn't matter you know this was the point where you know alcatraz was on you know an extremely long hiatus for lack of a better word um so it wasn't yeah. like you know you guys were, were kind of moonlighting you know playing alcatraz shows no. and doing this kind of it, you see a lot of musicians do that now where they're they kind of dabble in four yeah. or five different bands because that's the economy of, of music today. You need to do that to survive. Uh, but this exactly. is exactly. a situation where you guys were all in, uh, so to speak. Um, do you look yep. back, you know, at, at you know where Alcatraz ended in, you know, with eighty eight, eighty seven, somewhere in that ballpark? And do you guys ever kind of, you know, when you were talking to to Gary or Graham, uh, kind of regret not getting past that you know whatever caused the band to break up because of the fact that you know you were really in that prime time where you could have made a dent in the charts and 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 quite honestly money at that time well no we don't really 
don't really talk about it. Um, yeah, that no. <laughs> Once it was over, it was over. And then we went on, Bob and I went on with Dave Isley to do Murder's Row. Right. Uh, did an album for a much smaller Japanese label. Right. Real, again, I, I I really believe in the record, love the record, but it did absolutely nothing. because the mm-hmm. little label in Japan. They didn't have a clue and did no marketing at all. And again, we couldn't get arrested in the United States with it. But, so right. um, that was the end of that. <laughs> Yeah. So and then I, you know, I moved on. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's and, and and to be fair, you you had come to Alcatraz. It wasn't like the, you know they found you on the street. You had been in, in a pretty successful band with New England um, prior to Alcatraz. So you know it, it, you know, timing, I guess, be damned. Everything you yeah. know it all breaks down to that. Um, you guys. Yep. Speaking of timing, obviously you released Alcatraz. You know you're still playing with Alcatraz. You released an album um, that featured Graham, and then obviously there was a shakeup in the lineup. You've got uh, Doogie, who I just had the opportunity to talk mm-hmm. to a couple weeks ago. Um, you got a new album that's forthcoming. Um, do you have a street date on right. on the new Alcatraz album? October fifteenth. Okay. And it will be on the street. Are you guys trying to do shows, or I mean, at this point, I know that's such a gamble with you know expenses and, and you know trying to get everything together. He's obviously well, not even in the country. Um, is that even possible at this right point? Right now, we'll be yeah yeah. Well, we're we're booked. We have a tour in the UK in November. Okay. Starting first days November twenty first. So um, right now, uh, talking to promoters. Two days ago, and and everybody, everything's still on. Okay. So, I guess it remains to be seen. This stuff is every, fluid, you know, changing every day. So yeah. yeah. So, but it, but we do. We've had these dates booked for a long time. Yeah. And um, they've advertised. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's on websites of these yeah. the festivals we're playing. It's it's all advertised on that and. So if everything holds, then we'll go do that in November. Well, that's awesome. It's got to be great to get back out. Do you um, do you have a street oh date yeah. on the on the Blackthorn? And and how can folks get a hold of that if they want? You know, especially a physical copy. You're doing CDs, vinyl. Right. You know what? To be honest, I'm not sure uh, because we don't have we the me whatever. There's no website or anything or no Facebook. Uh, presence for Blackthorn. Okay. So, to be honest, I don't. Gosh, that's a really good question. I, I suppose you would, you know, Spotify, iTunes, right. the the normal download ways and streaming ways. It's no problem. Uh, physical CDs. I'm assuming, like Amazon. Okay. Um, I, you know, something like that. Sure, we'll, um, we'll find yeah. that info out yeah, and share that I, with folks. Yeah. I think hearing this is going to be the key, you know. And we get this in people's ears, and I think people will want to want right. to hear more. As it certainly did. Um, I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> I, I hope so. Jimmy, I'd be remiss not to, to just real quick. You had mentioned off air you were you were family was from from the Western Pennsylvania region. Do you want to talk a little bit about your experience in, in PA? Yeah, I used to uh I used to come up to uh Tynesta, okay. which is uh north of uh, Pittsburgh and uh we used to come up there in the summers cuz my dad was from Pennsylvania. He was from Oil City actually. Okay. And um so he went to school in Pittsburgh, went to college in Pittsburgh, so we had family up there. Uh some family in Pittsburgh, but most of the family was in uh Franklin or yeah. Oil City or Tynesta. So we used to go up to Tynesta on the Allegheny uh, in the summertime. Nice. And uh, I just loved it up there. Yeah. And the, the the farm that we used to go to is still there. Uh, nobody living there anymore. Um, the land's been turned into a conservancy, conservancy for uh, Greenpeace or something. Okay. Or <laughs> some... Uh, yeah, so it's really cool. It's 180 acres of land right on the Allegheny River. It's 
just amazing up there. God, I yeah. just love it. Yeah, I always thought, you know, if I was going to check out and go like, okay, I'm going out in the boondocks, so I'm going to live somewhere, that's one of the first places I would look. Yeah, in um, and, and, and the boondocks it, is probably a great description of that area. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful country. Um, obviously, you're, you're kind of far removed from some of the creature comforts of, of some of the bigger cities, but it's a beautiful, yeah. beautiful area up there. Um, it, it is it is amazing. And the one thing I liked about it, it's it's... I forget, like 40 miles from a freeway, hmm. uh, from a real freeway. And there's there's no uh, Home Depots or Best Buys or anything like that yeah. right around there. If you go to Tynesta, man, you're, you you might as well be 1960 or 1950. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really, uh, you know. But the only depressing thing about it is, is uh, we were just there and uh, – there's just Tynesta is just about gone. There's just nothing open. Mm-hmm. All the, the we would try to go get lunch. There was not even a place to eat in Tynesta. Yeah. So it was. Um, that's kind of a drag, you know, the economy. Yeah. And the, the COVID thing just must have kicked their ass. But I love it up there. Yeah. Spent a lot of time up there, and then my dad was from Oil City, so we had family around that area. So yeah. I love Pennsylvania, and of course New England. We toured. We played. Uh, we played Pittsburgh twice. We played, uh, gosh, well Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, we played some other towns, and I can't remember the name of them now. Um, but we, I've been playing in Pennsylvania since. Yeah, <laughs> well, really. I mean, high school. New England was what the very late seventies, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, seventy nine. Yeah, so you were... our first tour was the album came out in seventy nine, and we toured right away, and we did uh, shows with we toured with Kiss uh, a lot, and we toured with Sticks in Kansas and people like that. But we yeah. also we jump off those tours and do headline shows. So sure. we we played the uh, Stanley Theater in Pittsburgh. Oh, that's uh, and that was we we played one I think a headline show there, and then we played there again with Thirty Eight Special or somebody like that mm-hmm. but i love that place yeah it's, it's I, actually, I like those old theaters it's actually still um i just saw about well, prior to covid saw joe bonamassa and some other acts there it's now called the um um Benetton center in pittsburgh is what was huh. the stanley theater so if, if you're if you're coming back out this way um it's it's still vibrant and it's you've been a little bit refurbished i'm sure there's uh you know, they've probably repadded the seats a few times since 1979, but it is still the same place because every oh time, yeah. every time Kiss comes into town, Paul Stanley has to mention that he played the Paul Stanley Theater, yeah, of course. So. Oh right, right. Part and of they their did. Shtick. Yeah, yeah, they played had, there. I think one of their early early tours. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but before it, they were monstrous, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's still an awesome place to see. It, you know, yeah. much more intimate shows, but a, a wonderful venue. Uh, to see so and i played a and then i played a the, the big venue in pittsburgh it's probably the civic uh, arena at the time yeah it must have been civic arena or a sports it's had venue. so many different yeah it, it would have been the hockey arena um in, in pittsburgh has been uh, under a few sponsorship names but anybody's gonna know it as the civic arena man, i can't i can't remember who we were with or uh yeah. We did a lot of shows in that. If it's that first year, we were playing all over the place. And like I said, we would jump off. The Kiss tour would do four days, and then that, on that fifth day, they would fifth, sixth, they would have off, and we would take off and drive three hundred miles to play a club somewhere. Yeah. Um, or or do one show with somebody else. So uh, stay busy. We were all over the place. Well, Jimmy, Gosh. I want I want to. <laughs> Thank you so much again. Blackthorn, we'll, we'll share some links when we get the info on, on where folks can get that. We'll obviously share the streaming links. New Alcatraz. Uh, Thank you. We'll be pumped to hear that in, in what's going to be a blink of an eye in October. And, and uh, hopefully, you know, as 2022 rolls around, maybe we'll see you guys do some shows stateside. Yeah, that would be great. I would love to. Be awesome. I would really love to. I'm just dying to get out and play again. Yeah. <laughs> 
Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jimmy. Well, I appreciate you so it. Thank you for your time. And a big thank you to Jimmy Waldo. Again, if you head over to ironcityrocks.com, we'll keep you uh, up to date on where you can get Blackthorn's uh, two-album set. Also want to thank, again, Chan from uh, Blues Traveler. They'll be in town on the 28th. And also thank George Lynch. His album, Seamless, will be available on the 28th as well. So great show. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, head over to ironcityrocks.com. You can click on the episode, get all the information, links to buy all these things. Also use the contact link or email us at ironcityrocks at gmail.com. Let us know what you liked about the show, what you don't like, guests you're more interested in hearing from, uh, people you'd rather not hear from again. Uh, including myself, whatever it is, we, we have thick skin. Also, um, kind of a last plea, hopefully, uh, pghcitypaper.com. If you're listening to my voice and enjoy the show, we would deeply, deeply appreciate it. If you would head over there, click on the best of 2021 readers poll, go to people and places, give a vote for Iron City Rocks. We are one of uh, 10 finalists for the best local podcast in Pittsburgh, which in and of itself is an honor. Uh, we're in there with some really great shows, but unfortunately not many music shows. I believe only a, one other podcast really relates to music at all and, and is a fan of music, as I'm sure you are if you're listening to this show. Uh, it's a great chance for us to show Pittsburgh uh, that people still value music, and especially rock music, blues, metal, um, whatever you like. So we would really appreciate your vote. Plus, that helps us get out the word about Iron City Rocks, which in turn helps us get great guests. So. We hope you enjoy what we do. If you're listening, and especially if you're listening this late in the show, I'm guessing you do. So I would appreciate if you would take a few minutes and give us a vote. Uh, Social media, we are Iron City Rocks on everything. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, Snapchat. Um, Check them all out. Uh, And until next time, we want to thank you so much for listening.